happy Emancipation Day. Have you ever said that to anyone? You know, it's amazing to me how little we really focus on the significance of these events in the Bahamas, knowing our background. It really is. Happy Emancipation. How does that sound to you? How does it sound? should sound good, shouldn't it? But some people are afraid to say it. I don't know why, but it's a glorious event in itself. I started working on this message for the day several months ago while I was on vacation in Tampa. I normally go to the computer, as most of you know, and I get the newspapers, online newspapers, to keep, keep current. And I read of uh, some Junkanoos who said that they were going to implement the theme, the 200-year emancipation theme, in their uh, Junkanoo parade. They were going to focus on the theme. And all of a sudden, I said, you know, emancipation, slavery, what does the Bible have to say about it? Do they have anything to say about these things? And so this prompted me to begin looking into the whole issue of slavery and whether or not it's emancipation in 1807 or 1827, depends on how you want to look at it, whether they have any spiritual and biblical implications for us as Christians. So I believe that these events, national events, do have spiritual implications, but we ignore them many times. And so I began a study of slavery in the Bible. Now, to say the least, I was thoroughly surprised, delighted, and shocked by what I discovered in my studies and how many things I had overlooked myself in all the years of my study of the New Testament especially. In fact, to tell the truth, I'm still trying to assimilate it all, and you probably will hear messages in the future on these issues that I'm talking about today. But my findings, both from the Word and the world, made a tremendous impact upon me. And I really mean that. It's made a tremendous impact upon me, both on a personal level as well as a pastoral level as well. Now, I'm still not sure how I can best describe or communicate to me just how profound this impact has been upon me. I'm still trying to sort it out in my own mind. So today really is my first attempt in trying to communicate this burden, this passion, whatever you want to call it, to you. And so I've decided to do so in a summary fashion, leaving out many details for later, just giving you some headings, some menus to work from hoping that you would sense the importance of this issue or these issues and perhaps follow through on your own study as well. And so I'm not going to, I'm going to do it in a random fashion really because really I don't know how to put them in order yet, to tell you the truth. So even prioritizing, I'm not sure how. Even in a sequential order, now I will eventually do that. But right now so many things are going through my mind, I just don't know how to do it. And so I will present some things to you. It might not be in sequential order. It might not be according to priority, but I think you'll understand the importance of them. But here is a, here is a priority, having said all that. I want to begin with Scripture because that's where I started. I didn't start it with the history of slavery. I started with the biblical view of slavery. What do the Scriptures have to say about slaves? What do the scriptures have to say about slavery? What do the scriptures have to say about emancipation and freedom? There's a beautiful verse in the back in Galatians. They're concerning freedom. I'm not going to quote it to you. You look at it when you go. It's in keeping with our theme today. What does the Bible have to say about these issues? Now, what a study that turned out to be. I mean, it's going back to Greek classes again almost, because that's where we had to wind up finally going to the Greek text. And it was really an amazing situation there. Now, one of the most stunning things I discovered was that the word for slave or slavery 
was deliberately not translated in Scripture when and where it should be translated. It was a deliberate choice. In the King James Version, as well as many following it, only one or two didn't, that because of the social ramifications, the word slave or slavery would not be used, but the word servant instead. That was an amazing discovery for me, although I was aware of some verses that the word slave was used rather than servant. I didn't think it was so pervasive or that it was deliberately left out of translation because of social impact. We're going to see later on how deadly it can be when we give into the pressure of society or culture in interpreting scripture. We're going to see how deadly this is in a moment. The word servant was used instead of slave. I then looked up every instant in the New Testament. We have computers for doing, helping us do that, so I don't think I just read the whole thing. But they have it, you could do it in Greek as well as in English. And so I looked up every word in the New Testament, every instant where servant was used instead of slave. What an illumination this was. When you read the text, inserting slave, inserting slave rather than servant. Now notice, I said what an illumination, at least I should have said, what an illumination this was. Not a revelation, because it wasn't a revelation. The revelation was there. Only thing, I had the wrong illumination. When the illumination, the interpretation of Scripture is left to social pressure or society or culture, we always come up with erroneous interpretation. Always. And that's what happened here in many instances. Here's how one New Testament scholar put it. Although doulos, that's the Greek word, is normally translated servant, the word does not bear the connotation of a free individual serving another. You see, normally with a servant, you get the idea of a free individual serving somebody for returns. That's not true of a slave. And so everywhere you, you, you read the word servant in your Bible where slave should be, you're getting the wrong interpretation. One of the lectionaries, BDAG, this Briggs and some other people, he said, servant for slave is largely confined to biblical translation and early American times. In normal usage at the present time, the two words, slave and servant, are carefully distinguished. The most accurate translation is born servant or born slave. But as this is archaic, Few understand the term today. What I'm saying to you here, that the word slave and slavery is used repeatedly in the New Testament. And we have gotten a wrong interpretation and meanings of many passages of scripture because the word servant is used rather than the actual word that should be used which is slave. Now, another startling thing I discovered as a result of was is that do you know who used the word more than anyone else in the Bible? Jesus Christ himself. Look at most of his parables. All of them talks about masters and according to the version, servants, but it's really master and slave. You see, you cannot have a slave without a master. And guess what? You can't have a master without a slave. They go together. You see? Jesus uses the term, the concept, more than anyone else in the Bible himself. He always spoke about slaves and masters. And I'm going to run quickly through some of the verses here for you. And just to take, I've highlighted as best I can uh, the other one. Matthew 8, I won't read the whole thing. Look at the bottom line. He says, come and he comes, 
And to my slave, do this, and he does it. That's the translations that are correct according to the Greek. The other ones over here, the one that we used to says, to my servant, do this, and he does it. But it's really to my slave. Over here in Matthew 10, he says, it is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. In the translations that we have, normally we say servant. Go again. Next slide, please. I just want to show you here, so it won't take time to do it. Matthew 25, his master answered, well done, good and faithful slave. That's the translation. Mark 10, and whoever wants to be the first among you must be the slave of all. Luke 15, he answered his father, look, these many years I have worked like a slave for you, and I never disobeyed you. We normally see it as servant. It's a whole different connotation. Look at the next list. Now, this one is a little more difficult. This is John 13, 16. I can't even see this one myself. Alan, what does that say? Alan, read that for me. I... That's the one. All right, in the bottom, John 15, this is the one about, I don't call you friends anymore, but a friend. Right. Now, it's important this context, because a lot of people say that means that Jesus doesn't use the word or the concept slave anymore, because it says, I don't call you slaves anymore, I call you uh, friends. But actually, you have to take it in the context. He's only talking about revealing truths of the family. That's what he's talking about. It's like the idea ambassador. When in First Corinthians, uh, Paul says that we are ambassador of Christ. We have the, the message of reconciliation. We're only an ambassador in the sense of giving a message. We have a wrong interpretation because we're ambassadors. Everybody got to serve us. That's not the idea. It's that we have, an, a message, we have a message. And as an ambassador, we're supposed to be faithful to that message. Let's go to the other one. Now, this is an important one for me. Now, this is Paul. Paul himself talks about himself as a slave. Romans 1, from Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. We translated Paul, a servant. In Philippians 1.11, from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. From Titus, from Paul, a slave. Paul called himself slave. He called all the other apostles and his associates slaves of Christ. We translated servants of Christ. That's a nicer word. You see, and we lose the true import of the passage. But not only that, look at the next one here. Romans chapter 6. Paul has a very important doctrine concerning our relationship to Jesus Christ after we were saved and our relationship to sin. Notice what he says. In most translations, the word is is servant. But notice what Paul says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God, though you were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you entrusted. And having been freed from sin, that's emancipation, you became enslaved to righteousness. What do you see in that passage? We became, we, be, we were emancipated from one master, but what happened? But we were enslaved to another master. You understand that? So there's a still an important understanding for believers to understand when it comes to the slave-master relationship. Notice what he says now. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. I do that every morning of my life when I get up. That's the first thing I do every morning. Present the members of my body as instruments of righteousness to my master, Jesus Christ. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. You had nothing to do with it. All right, here's another one, though. Peter calls us slaves, believers. Live as free people, emancipated people. 
from sin that is, not using your freedom as the pretext for evil, but as God's slaves, talking to us. How are we to live as kings? Not according to this passage. As princes? Not according to this passage. Now there's some place for that, mind you. But for here? You know, it's amazing to me that the emphasis on kingdom living today, nobody talks about slaves in the kingdom. No, no talk about it. But the Bible is full of the concept. Notice, live as free people, not using your freedom as pretext, pretext for evil, but as God's slaves. How? By honoring all people, loving the family of believers, fearing God, honoring the king. When we do that, we do that as obedient slaves to our master, Jesus Christ. But now notice this one. Philippians 2. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but entered himself by taking on the form of a slave, not a servant. Jesus Christ took on the form of a slave by looking like other men and by sharing our human nature. So the amazing truth is, Alan Clickett, Jesus became a slave for us. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. What is your attitude now about the concept of a slave? Jesus became one for us. And so, as paradoxical as it may seem, the highest level of discipleship we can achieve as believers is when we regard ourselves and live as though we are absolutely and completely slaves of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's the highest level of discipleship. In other words, true emancipation for the believer is when we subject and submit our entire person to the lordship to, of our master, Jesus Christ. And we regard nothing as our own. In other words, it's only when we are enslaved to him that we are truly emancipated. Did you get that? It's only when we are enslaved to him that we are truly free. We are truly emancipated. And when the son emancipates you, you are emancipated forever. Now this has major implications for the belief. These are only headings for our study of this concept. There are many more Vital implications for us as believers. And it tells us, though, that there is a good slave-master relationship that we must consider. We just can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You understand what I'm saying? There's a relationship, in fact, that we willingly enter into when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Do you know what that relationship is if we are truly children of God? Here is the paradox. We enter into a slave-master relationship. And so when you say, yes, I receive you as my Savior, you're saying, I'm your slave. Can you dig it? Now, these, there are much detail to all of these things, and I hope I could look at them in the future time, at another time, and I will. But now I want to move on to summarize not only what I have seen so far from the Word, but also to look at what I've discovered so far as what I've discovered from the world. What has the world to say about slavery? That is, speaking historically and socially. Here's some of the things, and again, main headings. Number one, slavery did not originate with the British or the Americans, in fact, or even the Africans in the 18th or 19th century. Slavery has been around almost since mankind was created.
created. Slavery started thousands of years before Christ or Christianity. But in this side of the world, we believe that slavery was originated or planned by the English or the American, the ruralists, whoever you want to call them. That's not true. Now, they did some terrible things, and we can talk about that, but I'm just telling you now what history has to tell us, tell us about this. It did not originate on that side of the world. Secondly, Africans were not always the only or even the major victims. There's a thinking that is only Africans who have always been slaves. That is not true. In fact, I started to trace my ancestry, and you know something? Plenty Chinese were slaves. And I said that jokingly, but that's a fact. Most of the railroads uh, that were made and built in California were done by Chinese slaves. Africans then were not always the only or even the major victims of slavery. They only came into prominence with the discovery of the new world. But whites and Arabs and Slavs and Chinese were victims hundreds of years before that. In fact, the word slave actually comes from the Slavic language. That's right. Also, what we have come to know as the Middle Crossing or the Transatlantic Route, that's for the Africans coming to the Caribbean especially, which brought many of our forefathers here. That part of the slave tra tra trade only made up about 20 or the most 25% of worldwide slavery. In other words, it was a small part of worldwide. That's not the only slave that was going on. Now, that's in no way reduces the terrible... Uh, slavery that it had here, but I'm just trying to put things in perspective for us so we could get a good handle on what we're talking about here. And the reason why I want to do this is because of what I learned concerning the misapplication of Scripture and how we could go so far off when we, do, when we misunderstand things. And so what I'm saying here that the middle crossing or the transatlantic route of slave trade which brought many of your forefathers here, make, made up only about 20% of the worldwide slave trade. Unfortunately, though, it was perhaps also the most heinous, brutal, vicious, and degrading of that damnable trade. But my point here is this. Slavery was, and as we shall see in a moment, still a worldwide, and I believe, demonic energized business. But now here is one of the most distressing and heartbreaking things that I was impressed with as I did my studies. And it is that those who profess to believers in Christ, as well as major denominations, including the Roman Catholic Church of that period, they boldly and piously declared that the Bible endorsed such a heinous trade which regarded those who were made in the image of God to be mere chattel and owned as personal property and who had no personal rights of their own. The church, believers in Jesus Christ. And I have, and I found some records, it's amazing, of bishops would get up and give an exposition of scripture saying that we must be true to the word of God and come to the conclusion that slavery is God's will. This perhaps hurt me more than anything else I discovered. The thing that Christians could be part of such a devilish thing and say it's the will of God. This is also impressed, this is impressed upon me the terrible damage that could be done and Christians live their life based on a misinterpretation of the word of God. Let me, let me give you an illustration of this. This is from the Roman Catholics. Now remember, and this is in no way here trying to pick them out because I'm going to show you something from the Protestants as well. But, but the Roman Catholics always declare themselves as being infallible. 
in the teaching. As late as 1866, the Holy Office issued an instruction that justified slavery. After mentioning that the Holy See had, diff- had often forbidden the Negro slave trade as unjust kidnappings, the document proceeds, quote, Nevertheless, slavery itself, considered as such in its essential nature, is not at all contrary to the natural and the divine law. And there can be several just titles of slavery, and these are referred to, and these are referred by approved theologians and commentators of the sacred canons. It is not contrary to the natural and divine law for a slave to be sold, to be bought, and to be exchanged or to be given. Now notice this. The Holy Office thus declared ordinary slaves to be sanctioned by Scripture. That's the position that they take. They took at that time. But 25 years later, in 1891, Pope Leo XIII issued a cyclical letter. This one is supposed to be authoritative. Which any legi- in which he said that any legitimate excuse for slavery was denied. In 1918, the new code of canon law imposed heavy ecclesiastical, pen- ecclesiastical penalties on whoever sells a human being into slavery. 1965, the Vatican stated, all offenses against human dignity, such as arbitrary imprisonment, deportation, slavery, the traffic in women and children, all these are are like criminal. They poison civilization and they debase the perpetuators more than the victims and militate against the honor of the creator. In other words, they change their minds. But listen, the damage that was done between the time they issued the first and the time they issued a retraction, thousands and thousands of Christians were led into the slave trade because of the misinterpretation of Scripture. And that was not only Roman Catholics, it was Anglicans, it was Baptists, it was Presbyterians, all of them were part of this devilish trade and said, that it was the will of God. You know why? It was because of the pressure of society. They allowed society and culture to dictate how they interpret scripture. And as a result, millions of lives were lost. And many of the people who were responsible for it were people who said they were children of God. It's astounding how far the errors of misinterpretation of Scripture and interpreting Scripture according to the way we feel how far it can lead us away. Oh, I know what it says, but it just don't feel right to do. My friends, this has impressed me more and more the need for the people of God to study their Bible and stop listening to people who you know do not study the Bible themselves. You could be led straight to hell because of it. This is a tremendous, tremendous concern for me in my preaching the word and teaching the word of God. My friends, Noah never cursed his son Ham. You know that, eh? But that's what many Protestants believe. Especially in the South, that's what they taught. But Noah never cursed his son Ham. He cursed who? Ham's father, Canaan. He made a prophecy, a prediction concerning Ham. But it was not a curse. And so he never cursed us on Ham and the black race, my friend, was never divinely subjugated to slavery. Yet thousands of professing Christians used this erroneous interpretation of Scripture to enslave human beings made in the image of God. And they felt that they were spiritually okay in doing so. That's how far away from God 
the misinterpretation of Scripture can lead you. Now, tomorrow on ECB, um, let me back up. Thankfully, God also used Christians to bring about the abolition of slavery. And we're going to see that those responsible were primary, primarily Christians. God also used Christians to bring about the abolition of slavery, which has led up to our celebration of emancipation today. In fact, it is appropriate to say that without the active persistence of dedicated Christians, both black and white, slavery would not have been abolished in England and the American colonies 200 years ago, and perhaps we might have still been under that devilish trade. Word for Christians. Tomorrow on ECB, we're going to present them almost the entire day. Three hours of continuous dramatization of the lives of two such individuals who helped in this. William Wilberforce and a, neg- a freed black slave called Oluda Equino. I can never pronounce him. And I will play a portion of his story tonight as well. I'm going to elaborate on this and show some other things later on this evening. But now let me give you a capsule of the man who perhaps more than any other is responsible for the day we are celebrating today. William Wilberforce. Please turn off the lights as well, man. Lord Middleton, where is he? I do not know. No, not that one. The documentary. That was my fault, by the way. I gave it to him too late. So don't blame any of the guys up there. They're doing great. Two hundred years ago, England was the world's greatest superpower. It was also the world's greatest slave trader. Ships by the hundreds sailed from Britain's shores for the West African coast, where crews employed brutal methods capture and enslave their human cargo for the fields and plantations of the new world. Not only was this inhumane practice highly profitable, it was national policy. Planners and traders leveraged their tremendous wealth to exercise powerful influence in Parliament. Few voices were raised in protest. The British slave trade represented a portion of the British economy not unlike the portion of the economy here in the U.S. that's tied up with the defense industry. Anyone hoping to abolish this slave trade would need intelligence, grace, influential friends, the gift of oration, and most of all, faith. It would take years of tireless, thankless, and failed efforts to wake a nation's passion for freedom and justice. But 200 years ago, one man and his friends did indeed stand up against this injustice and started a movement that would change the world. That man was William Wilberforce. Born in 1759 in the city of Hull, England, Wilberforce was small, sickly, and frail. His physical condition didn't improve much with adulthood. Later, he would be described as all soul and no body. But he did develop a powerful intellect and had an uncommonly beautiful voice that was as charming and beguiling as it was convincing. He attended Cambridge in 1776, where he met William Pitt, who would become his lifelong friend and the youngest prime minister in British history. They worked together for years to help end the slave trade. And although Pitt was overwhelmed by the war against Napoleon's France, Wilberforce had in William Pitt no greater friend to ending the slave trade. At the age of 21, Wilberforce ran for election in the House of Commons and won. 
Wilberforce later confessed that his early political aim was not to serve others. The first years I was in Parliament, I did nothing, nothing that is to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. All that changed in 1785. In November of that year, Wilberforce wrote William Pitt saying that he was in the midst of a spiritual transformation, an ongoing process he would later refer to as his great change. Wilberforce explained that he was searching for a calling in life and that from now on, his political views would have to follow his conscience and his convictions. Pitt urged him to remain in politics. Surely the principles of Christianity lead to action as well as meditation. Oh, excellent point. Allow me to meditate on it before I decide on any action. Just think about this, Wilbur. The slave trade has 300 MPs in its pocket. It would be just you against them. But you could do it. Wilberforce's faith and profession were at a crossroads. Did his new beliefs require him to leave his position in government? Or should he remain in Parliament? Could his career also be his calling? And so he made a decision to visit an old family friend for advice. The man was a former slave trader known for his profanity and violence until he too had experienced a religious conversion. John Newton was now a 60-year-old pastor who had written a hymn entitled, Amazing Grace. Wilberforce wrote a, a note in secret to Newton, asked for permission to meet with him, and said, you mustn't tell anyone about this. The face of a member of parliament is so well known, I don't want to be seen consorting with an evangelical. And Wilberforce walked to Charles Square in London where Newton lived, and he couldn't summon up the courage to knock on the door. He walked around the square once and twice, and finally knocked on the door and it couldn't have been a wiser choice Newton had been through a lot of storms in his own life all of the circumstances that gave rise to his great hymn Amazing Grace he had a wealth of experience and he was the perfect person for a troubled young man to turn to it would be a defining moment of his life upon leaving that day Wilberforce later wrote I found my mind in a calm tranquil state more humbled and looking more devoutly up to God. After two years of encouraging Wilberforce in his new faith, Newton challenged him. It is hoped and believed that God has raised you up for the good of the church and the good of the nation. Who knows that but for such a time as this, God has brought you into public life and has a purpose for you. Newton's words proved to be prophetic and Wilberforce returned to Parliament a changed man. He was ready for a mission when approached by the early abolitionist Thomas Clarkson, who lobbied him to take the anti-slavery cause up before the House. Clarkson's horrific evidence detailing the cruel trade of slavery moved Wilberforce into action. On October 28, 1787, Wilberforce penned these memorable lines in his diary. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. The movement had found its champion. Later that year, Wilberforce brought a motion to the House of Commons for the abolition of the slave trade. It would be 20 long years, 20 years filled with frustration, duplicity, and disappointment before he would carry the House of Commons and the House of Lords in putting abolition into law. In fact, due to a severe illness from which he nearly died, it would take Wilberforce two years just to bring his first parliamentary speech against the slave trade. For three and a half hours, he outlined its brutal realities, presenting for many the first glimpse into slavery's grim practices. He concluded, Having heard all this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. Parliament responded with typical delay tactics. In the midst of the political chicanery, the great Methodist reformer John Wesley wrote Wilberforce a letter of support and encouragement. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? It was the last letter Wesley ever wrote. 
He died a week later. But his words must have stayed with Wilberforce as he faithfully endured 13 more years of consecutive defeats in Parliament. Finally, after failure upon failure, finally after hours of debate which lasted into the pre-dawn hours of February 24, 1807, a resolution to end the slave trade in all of Britain was passed at four in the morning. It was a moment like, unlike any other in British history. The House of Commons rose as one man and applauded for several minutes on end Wilberforce. And he sat there with the tears streaming down his face. The historian G.M. Trevelyan has said, speaking of the abolition of the slave trade, that it was one of the turning events in the history of the world. More than two decades later, on July 26, 1833, word from London was rushed to Wilberforce as he lay gravely ill. The House of Commons had casted the decisive vote of victory to outlaw slavery throughout its empire. 800,000 slaves were freed. Three days later, William Wilberforce died and was buried in Westminster Abbey. Free Africans in New York City wrote a formal eulogy and had it delivered to England. Harriet Beecher Stowe praised Wilberforce in the pages of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Abraham Lincoln invoked his memory in a famous speech. Wilberforce speaks to us so powerfully because he is probably the best example we have of someone who carried his faith into the public square to write a great human rights. great tradition that we're familiar with here in America. One thinks of Martin Luther King Jr. and his passionate pursuit of civil rights. Faith was the basis for Dr. King's pursuit of social justice. The same is the case with Wilberforce. Like Dr. King, his faith was the source of first principles that inspired him on the fight to end first the slave trade and later slavery itself. Today, exactly 200 years after Parliament cast its historic vote to outlaw the slave trade, the mission and the movement of Wilberforce and his friends continues. Today, people of courage and conviction are putting their faith into action, taking a stand for the weakest and most vulnerable, those who have no voice and need our help, following the footsteps of the hero of humanity, William Wilberforce. Now, <clears throat> I know if you feel at your sleeve, feel free to do that, but I want you to hear now the dramatization of the presentation that Wilberforce made to Parliament. Now remember, he was sick. Remember that all the, just about all of the people in there, except for a handful, were against him. The more affluent people were completely against him. His life was at stake. But he, because of his conviction that this was such a uh, terrible sin, Wilberforce decided to present the bill before Parliament. I want you to hear this dramatization. The audio section now, please. Milton, where is he? I do not know. He assured me he will come. I can delay the house no longer. I will ask for another postponement. This may be our only opportunity this session. Well, then you introduce it. I, I cannot. I am not prepared to address the house. Mr. Pitt. I believe the next item is yours. May we please proceed? Uh, Mr. Speaker, it is true the next item is, was to be presented by Mr. Wilberforce of York. 
On a subject some may consider the most important subject this House has ever debated. So I thank the House for its patience while we wait. Will the Prime Minister stop wasting our time and either introduce his bill or yield the floor to other business? I will. I will. Mr Speaker. Ah, Mr Wilberforce. I am deeply sorry for my delay. May we please proceed? We shall. Hello, William. Are you all right? Hmm. Mr Speaker, members of the House, our friends in the gallery, when I consider the magnitude of the subject which I am to bring before the House, a subject in which the interests not of this country, nor of Europe alone, but of the whole world and of posterity are involved, and when I think at the same time on the weakness of the advocate who has undertaken this great cause, it is impossible for me to not feel both terrified and concerned at my own inadequacy to such a task. But when I reflect on the encouragement which I have had through the whole course of a long and laborious examination of this question, and how much candor I have experienced, and how much conviction has increased within my own mind, I take courage. I determine to forget all my other fears, and I march forward with a firmer step in the full assurance that my cause will bear me out, and I shall be able to justify, upon the clearest principles, every resolution here in my hand. I wish exceedingly, in the outset, to guard both myself and the House from entering into this subject with any sort of passion. It is not their passions I shall appeal to. I ask only for their cool and impartial reason. And I wish not to take them by surprise, but to deliberate point by point upon every part of this question. I mean not to accuse anyone, but to take the shame upon myself, in common, indeed, with the whole Parliament of Great Britain, for having suffered this horrid business to be carried on under our authority. We are all guilty. We ought all to plead guilty and not to exculpate ourselves by throwing the blame upon others. This is a business founded upon iniquity. From this moment forward, let the policy be what it might. Let the consequences be what they would. But I will not rest until we have reached a just conclusion. And so I submit to the consideration of the House several resolutions upon which a general motion should be found for the total abolition of the slave trade. They fought the battle for 20 years after that. It was only three days before William Wilberforce died that they finally passed the bill for the abolition of slavery. That's why we can celebrate it today, because of Wilbur, Wilberforce. But now, here's what has made the most profound impact upon me in all of this. Slavery is still alive and well in the world today, in spite of that act. It has never really been completely abolished. It just went underground and taken on a different face. Look at these headlines here, for instance. 
just to describe this. And this is where my burden is right now here. Reunited boys saved from slavers. Look at the other one here, quickly. Slavery in our time, human trafficking and modern-day slavery, Islam and slavery, kidnapping Christian girls and converting them into Islam. Converting them to Islam. We could go on and on and on. Slavery is still alive today. And I believe that for all of us in the Bahamas who are saying that we are celebrating and we have freedom from slavery, and I mean both black and white, and Chinese and anyone else, I encourage you now to think upon those who are still enslaved around the world. Millions. Some have estimated anywhere from 20 to the 50 million people are still enslaved, and most of them are children and women. And for the most part, the world is turning its back. And again, so is the church. Now tonight I'm going to go into this a little bit more detail because I know it's late. We have some more to show you here. But there is a movement amongst the churches now to help to eradicate slavery. And it comes in all forms. And it might surprise you, some of it is happening here in the Bahamas as well. But we just don't call it that. We have it another name. And we're going to see that. You remember not too long ago, two dancers from one of the clubs came to the Tribune and said they were brought over from South America and the passports were taken away from them and they were kept into this home and couldn't go out at all. And the people who had them is only giving them a, just a minor amount. That's slavery. And we're seeing it happening again and again. And we're going to get involved in this. And there's a petition to be signed. We have it out in the foyer. If you would like, they want as many names who are against human slavery to be sent in to this Free to Slave International. And there's some other areas we're getting. Patrick Sugdeo involved, so he can give me some more information. Because we are going after slavery. We want to see if we could abolish slavery in the world forever. Amen? So please come on tonight, and as you go today, you might be able to sign. I encourage you to do that as well. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word to us and what you've shown us today. May we respond, we pray, with courage and conviction. We thank you for Wilberforce and all of the other believers who are involved in getting that bill passed 200 years ago. But now, our Father, give us the courage to continue his work to eradicate slavery from our planet today. And all of God's people said, Amen.